This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of Gen Z Money. This week, we're talking about 10 steps to buying your first property. And today I have Glenn joining me. Thanks so much for joining us, Glenn. Hey, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. I was just saying before, I imagine a lot of the listeners of this show already know who Glenn is. If you've listened to My Millennial Money before, you would know this voice very, very well. But I thought I'd bring Glenn on today as Glenn is all over the property purchase process. So Glenn, tell me a bit about your property journey. Yeah, so I was, I know a lot of people in their early 20s are well and truly on the way to having that as a goal and uh, wanting to save a deposit or have spoken to their parents or whatever. Uh, I was a bit later to the party because my focus on my life in the early 20s was to build a business. And then in my late 20s, I purchased my first home that I'm living in. Uh, obviously got the government grants that were available at the time, and we can talk about that. Uh, and then a short time after that, I purchased my first investment property. Uh, so I've really got some experience uh, firsthand of buying a house to live in uh, and buying an investment property. And I've got a third property on the way at the moment. Awesome. So I think today we're going to be breaking it into kind of two sections. We're going to be talking about the things that you can do to prepare yourself when you're getting ready to buy your first home and then things you can do to kind of build a strategy and actually execute that purchase. So um, let's start off with the first one, Glenn. So you said having a spending plan in place. Yeah, it it really is like whether you're interested in buying a property or investing in shares or whatever that is, you know, saving up cash and buying a tiny house on a block and living it, living in that in the countryside. I believe if you've got an income, you really need a a cash flow system in place because Azari, as you would know, the foundation of anyone's financial life is income and then expenses and managing that correctly. So I think just as some self prep, you really do just need to have your own cash flow system in place. There's no right or wrong way. I believe there is a way and that is your way that works for you. Absolutely. And if you're looking to be applying for a mortgage in the next 12 months or so, are there any purchases that um, mortgage brokers or the banks will be looking at that may look bad on your transaction history? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. You know, if you want to move to kind of point two in this self-preparation thing, I'd really encourage anyone to close down any buy now, pay later services uh, if you're living on credit and paying off a credit card uh, because the, when you do your spending plan and really get on top of your budget, and if you do need help, there's a link in the show notes. I run a spending plan that will help you uh, get set up because if you can't manage your money now, buying a mortgage it's not going to make you manage your money easier overnight. So it's while we're starting to save and get prepped, I believe it's great to really get started now. So with the buy now, pay later stuff and any consumer debt, while the buy now, pay later, you don't pay interest. It's not necessarily a credit product. The banks, what they do is they build a credit profile on you. So if they see transactions to afterpay and zip pay, they may be less likely to one, lend it all, or two, give you a really good interest rate because you might be more of a high risk. 
If you've got any personal loans, credit cards, it's really important that you try and clear up that debt and even car loans because of every $10,000 of debt could impact your borrowing power of mortgage uh, by $40,000. So it's a really strong case to get your personal cash flow in a really good position, clean up any debt. And then secondly, what they might look at as well, uh, if a bank's seeing transactions to sports bet regularly, if there's regular transactions at a local club or RSL that's got cash withdrawals, that can be a flag as well. So for your own benefit, mortgage and getting a house aside, I'd really challenge you if anyone's into like gambling and, and just really looking into that, I'll never tell anyone what to do with their money, but I just think longer term wealth creation, uh, the gambling if it does get a hold of you, it can really erode uh, your savings, your money, and it can blow up your life. So point three was, you know, after closing down any of those buy now, pay later services, Zaria, is to just to really focus on becoming consumer debt free. The first three points of self prep, make sure you've got a spending plan in place or a, a budget that you're used to using, close down any buy now, pay later services, and work towards becoming debt free, because it will just make such a difference with number one, getting potential money to borrow. Number two, you'll probably have more money because the best way to get a pay rise is to do a budget. Uh, number three, it will actually make life a lot easier when you do get that first property. Yep, absolutely. And then when we're thinking about the deposit, you would know it's quite intimidating to think of saving such a large amount of money. And for those who are out there who may be fortunate enough to have parents who potentially already own a home or have family that may be willing to help, can you talk us through a little bit about genuine savings versus, say, having a parental guarantee and all that kind of thing? Effectively, when you get a loan from the bank, they will not lend 100% of the property value. Okay. So, the magical number in bank land is a LVR, which is a loan to value ratio, and they like a perfect world 80-20. So you borrow 80% of the property value and you come up with 20% of the property value that you put into the property. So the reason why is if you didn't pay your mortgage and they had to repossess the property, the chances of that property being worth less than 20% uh, that you paid for it being down more than 20% is very low. So the banks know at least they can sell the property and get the debt back. So there's a couple of ways that we can come up with the 20% deposit. The number one is to actually just save genuine savings. The number two way is to have some genuine savings and pay lenders mortgage insurance. The third way is to have a parental guarantee where the bank effectively say to your parents, hey, we want to put a mortgage on your parents' house that is security for 20% of the property value. Then we will lend you 100% of that loan. So if you're buying a $500,000 house, you would you'd borrow $500,000, but the bank would have 80% of the security on the property and the other 20% secured against the parent's house. So if you couldn't pay and then they sold the house and couldn't recoup the money, they have a right to sell your parent's house. Wow. That's kind of a way to go if you do have parents. Now, if you do have a parental guarantee, and we might put a link in the show notes uh, from my millennial property episode that I did with John Pigeon, we can go deeper into that when you listen to it there. 
There's a couple of other ways. The federal government a couple of years ago released uh, a scheme called the First Home Loan Deposit Scheme, which basically, and they have limited spots. You'd have to speak to a mortgage broker and uh, not every bank or lender does this, Azaria, but effectively the government steps in as the parental guarantee. So that's a really good option if, if you need that. So we just need to know we need a deposit, whether it is 100% savings, whether it's some savings and some lenders mortgage insurance, which you would borrow and pay back Mm -hmm. and it doesn't protect you, it protects the bank. So if you can't pay the mortgage, there's an insurance policy that the bank can get their money back. Yeah. And then I, there was actually a thing on the ABC, Zaria, where it was a story where someone went bankrupt basically or didn't pay their mortgage, got booted out and the, lender's mortgage insurance company chased after the person after the bank got their insurance proceeds. Wow. So there's that lender's mortgage insurance. Then there's the parental guarantee. And then there's the government's first home loan deposit scheme. So there's a big spectrum that your mortgage broker can uh, work with you uh, with, but it's just so important for you in your own mind just to have some type of idea and strategy. So for example, if you're in a, a family that, you know, is a bit toxic and you don't want anything to do with them, mm-hmm. that might be off the table. If you've in a family, great family, but uh, mum and dad rent and they've been through their hard times financially, that's going to be off the table anyway. With my house that I'm living in now, I took the view that I would not do a parental guarantee and I had some deposit and I paid lenders mortgage insurance. Mm-hmm because I didn't want to tie mum and dad up and worry about paperwork and stress all them out. Like it was actually easier for me just to um, say, yeah, I'll just pay a little bit more, get into the property. I got into the right time. The property increased $300,000 within three years. So it was just, it was a good decision. I just had to kind of get in the market. So lots there with deposit and maybe Azaria, you might even do an episode about how to save money and you know, flowing from that could be the side hustles and all that stuff. So Yeah, absolutely. That's a great idea. Well, then we'll, let's talk about yes. when you go from, let's say if you're living at home and you're saving for a property or if you're living in a share house, obviously jumping from, you know, p- paying a couple of hundred dollars a week in rent or in board to paying off a mortgage um, is quite a big jump. Do you have any basic rules of thumbs that you'd use surrounding how much you should be spending on a mortgage? Yeah, so... We know in our financial life, uh, the cost of accommodation is going to be there until we own our house outright and we don't have to pay a mortgage repayment, right? Yeah. So, oh, on that day, <laughs> doesn't everyone? <laughs> As a general rule, I, I like to say, if you are renting or if you are getting a mortgage, you really want to make sure that your repayments on the mortgage or your rent are less than 30% of your after-tax take-home income. The reason why is over 30%, you're basically considered, once you've got a mortgage, in a mortgage stress. And the problem, if it's happening for a long period of time, uh, is you'll end up in other debt because you won't be able to afford your lifestyle and you might like, oh, I'll just get a credit card just in case. And then you know, oh, I'll just use it to buy this and I'll just use it to buy that. And because you're spending so much on rent or mortgage repayments, uh, 
it will turn around and you know you'll end up in debt or you'll have a really bad quality of life uh, because you're just spending way too much of your money on your mortgage or rent. Now, under thirty percent of your net income is uh, is good. Twenty five percent is great. Twenty percent is fantastic. Uh, and 0% is euphoric because you own the house and you don't have to pay rent. Or, or you're you have really generous parents, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. But there could be like, so I know somebody who is renting in a capital city at the moment, short term, it was a year stint. They're a young professional, really expensive, night shifts at a hospital, all that stuff. They had to, pay, they're like actually paying like 42% of their income in rent, mm. right? Now, that's not sustainable long-term, but part of the strategy is I need to do that because shortly after I do that, I will get a pay rise because I'll be qualified. And so, I'm not saying if you're paying 35% of your net take-home income in rent or if you're paying you know, 40%, I'm not telling you to sell everything up and find a different rental now. No, I'm just saying you need to know that it's not sustainable long-term. Yeah. So, something's got to change. Income's got to increase. Rent has to decrease. And the reason we harp on about this is the banks and the lenders, what they tell you you can borrow isn't always what you should borrow. So, as a rule of thumb, I would consider no more than 30% of your net take-home income once you have a mortgage application underway or you're, you're talking with your broker, just so you know. Awesome. So that kind of summarizes our self-preparation section. So through there, we went through getting a spending plan in place, getting rid of any buy now, pay later services, clearing off that consumer debt, considering whether or not you can do genuine savings or any of the four options that Glenn spoke about, which was genuine savings, lender's mortgage insurance, parental guarantee, or the government guarantee. And the number five was working out if your mortgage repayments or your rent will be 30% or less of your income and kind of considering how that's going to work. Yeah. And a a good mortgage broker will be able to help you, you know, strategize the gen savings or the parental guarantee stuff. I like, I'm just going to get my calculator out. Um, Let's have a look. Uh, If, you know, we're not talking about buying a house, you know, with within 10 kilometers of a capital city, just for example. So, if there was a house for sale for $535,000, okay, and you're thinking that's going to be my first house or my first investment property, yeah. as a general rule of thumb, I believe your first saving target probably should be 5% of your purchase price, okay? So, if you've got all your debt cleaned up, you know that you've got a no chance of a parental guarantee. Realistically, you're probably going to need 25 grand before you can pick up the phone and speak to a mortgage broker. Okay. That's good to know. Provided you can't get the parental guarantee. And if the government say that there's no spots left on the scheme, but I would probably say if you are serious about getting your first property, whether it's an investment property or a home loan, and you are debt-free and your savings campaign, I like to call it a campaign because <laughs> it's not going to happen overnight. Yep. If your saving campaign is underway and strong, it won't hurt to talk to a broker, just a spitball to give you some solid goals because they can go, look, save this, totally come back and 
yeah, and we can go from there. Are there mortgage brokers out there who are willing to just talk to someone who's maybe still a while off purchasing a house but maybe just wants some clarity around that situation? Yeah, so a lot of people that reach out to me uh, via sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help who are after a trusted mortgage broker, any of my mortgage brokers around Australia, and they're not mine as in I own them or (laughs) they work for me, but they're on our trusted panel, they've agreed to have a a 15-minute chat with anyone who's interested in getting a mortgage. So just as a general rule, this is why I think it's important, this self-prep stuff it might be wasting yours and their time to call them if you are in your eyeballs in debt, if you haven't got a system in place. But if you're pretty much getting out of debt or nearly there and your savings campaign's underway, certainly reach out and any uh, good mortgage broker would be happy to chat with you because if they can help you get them get you on the right track, you might become a client of theirs one day. So uh, I would encourage that. So we'll leave the link yeah. for that one in the show notes to this episode. Perfect. Cool. So let's go into the second half of this episode, which is kind of around developing a bit of a strategy and actually executing it. So while we're already on the topic of affordability, uh, we all know that one great way to make your mortgage repayments more affordable is to have roommates. So what would you say around considering roommates or, or living alone? Well, I this is a funny story. When I was renting before I bought this place, I was renting with a roommate. Uh, and it's just the weirdest thing happened. And Azaria, I reckon you've experienced this as well, moving into your own apartment. So when you're renting with a flatmate or a share house, or whatever, your room is your special place or whatever. So it's yours. It's, it feels like yours. It's your retreat. Okay. I moved into this house. My roommate came with me and rented a room off me, but I actually didn't do it for the money because I didn't need the money, I did it just for the, yeah, it'd be cool to live with someone else. Yeah. Within three months of moving here, this weird thing happened. The special space that was my room, because I own the house, the whole house was my special place. <laughs> and what's this guy doing in my <laughs> special place? Now, it's obviously, it's different personality, whether you're, I'm an introvert as well. Um, so, I'm okay living alone. So there's those dynamics. So I was pretty much like, hey, I'm not vibing this, can't do it. Different story if I needed the money, okay? So I think it is a consideration to consider whether you're gonna have a a roommate or two or not. I would be cautious though to say, look, with a roommate, my mortgage repayments are, you know, 25% of my net. Without a roommate, they're 45, um, that's dangerous. So you wanna make sure you've got some cash reserves or your emergency fund, or it just really depends on your own appetite for risk, but it could be risky if you are running on the line. And we know the best way to not run on the line is to go back to the self prep part and not have any consumer debt, have a money system in place. So was that like your experience with a roommate and moving from a share house arrangement or whatever it is to your own sanctuary? Yeah, I loved I loved the share house I was in. I loved the girls I was living with. It was great. But like you, definitely an introvert. I love that if I come out into the kitchen in the morning and there's something out of place, it's only like I've only got myself to blame. And yeah, I love the piece of it. And I totally agree. I was always in my room when I had a share house and I literally only use that to sleep now. I couldn't think of a more boring room of my house. In the lounge room, we've got the TV, you know, we've got the new VR headset that I got today. It's just, it's a party out here. (laughs) Yeah. But it's just so strange, isn't it? Like 
But again, it would be a different dynamic if you wanted to buy the house and you needed a roommate to make your life more comfortable financially. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, right. So, so yeah, it's um, it, it is just a choose your own adventure, but it's just a consideration. Are you going solo, or are you having a roommate or two? Absolutely. And if you play your cards right, depending on where you are, if you're in a regional centre, for example, and it was a uni town, and you could buy a big four bedroom house and rent to three people, you might even make some good bloody money. <laughs> so, that's um, it exactly. So we have a good idea of um, how we're going to save the money. We have an idea of how much we're willing to spend on repayments and whether or not we're going to have someone living in the house to help us do that. But how do we get a good gauge of how much we should actually be borrowing? Yeah, so well and truly by now, um, you'd want to speak to a mortgage broker, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely if you've if you've worked out yourself like you know, I've got my budget, I've got some savings on the way. Yeah, I'm sweet. I'll just worry about a mortgage broker when the time comes. Now you really need to get a mortgage broker and then you can sit down with them, Skype or whatever, and just go, okay. Oh, and that's another thing. Your mortgage broker doesn't need to be in your local town. You should not be getting property advice from your mortgage broker. I'm sorry that they can give you some, a bit of a temperature of the local area, but realistically, your mortgage broker could work in Perth and operate in Perth if you live in Melbourne. Like it's actually, all they're doing is applying on your behalf and executing that part of the deal for you. So there's a whole other Uh, profession for people that are experts in certain areas, is that right? Yeah, and we can talk about kind of John, the co-host on the My Millennial uh, Money podcast, but I think at this stage, you really need to hone down on the type of property that you're after in terms of whether it's a townhouse or a unit or a freehold property or whatever that is, and then speaking with your broker to say, hey, how much can I borrow? And does this line up with how much I've got to spend on uh, the mortgage repayments? And then also at this stage, the mortgage broker can say, look, based on your situation, you're a, um, a medical professional or a lawyer or an accountant or someone like that or a professional sports player and we can get this special deal for you that's not available to all professions. So yeah, at this time, you can really hone in with that broker on what the most appropriate lender is, what the most appropriate loan structure is, all that stuff. And I would really encourage you, you're not pressing go with the broker until you totally understand the process. Perfect. And we know that there's two kind of ways to buy a property, either as an investment property or as a house to live in. Is there one option that's best for first home buyers or what would you say around the consideration there? Yeah. So this kind of goes into, you know, the strategy part, you know, point eight, like what are you wanting to buy? Is it an investment property or or the first home? Now we know that in in the current time of recording this, there are you know stamp duty exemptions, first home buyer grants, uh, dependent there, and most of these are state based. Uh, so there could be a consideration um, if you are in a regional centre or somewhere where prices are reasonable and you like the area and it's affordable. Hey, I'm going to buy my first home. I'm going to get the government grants. I'm going to live in that. That all stacks up. But if you're living in an expensive suburb and you've grown up there and you've got parents that are well off, but you can't ever afford to bloody buy there right now, it might be an option to say, look, I'm going to keep renting in the area or live at home for another two years. 
and buy an investment property somewhere else that's more affordable, which means you might forego any government grants, but because you're being strategic and a savvy property investor, um, you might make more from the market than that 15 or 20 grand that you would have got from the government. And if you want to reach out and have a, a chat with John Pigeon, uh, he's a property coach and he does clarity calls and there's examples on the MIME. And seriously, if you want, just send my millennial money or Gen Z money inbox a message on Instagram or azaria.money and say, look, can you just send me the link to the example of a John Pigeon clarity call? And that we've got a couple of live recordings where he sat down with people and just talked about goals. And then you've got your clarity. Then you can go to a mortgage broker and say, I need you to help me execute this strategy. And as well, don't be shy about spending money on professional advice. I completely agree. $330 to get some strategy. You're about to buy like a property that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's the most money you're ever going to spend in your life. (laughs) No, I'm I'm happy to... um, I'm happy to spend a couple of hundred to get some good strategy off a third party who isn't a toxic uncle or aunt <laughs> who wants you to not do anything because they lost all their money and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny, Azaria, like how many times do you see things online where people are like, oh, I'm not ever investing in shares. That's risky and that's gambling where I'll just walk into buying a house next door. Yeah, because like, it looks cool. <laughs> I get a good vibe Yeah, and it. it's so <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't invest $5,000. <laughs> But I'll go and borrow $500,000. Yep. Um, but I'm just kind of joking around with you. But in all seriousness, the strategy piece will um, will really help you. John's even got an online course that he talks about all the property strategy. So we'll leave that in the show notes as well. There's a lot of links that are going to be in this show notes. So. <laughs> it's going to be very full. We like that. What other considerations have we got? So another thing, I think I learned this in university and it definitely shocked me a little, was that there, if you're buying with another person, say you're buying with your partner or you're buying with a sibling, for example, to make it more accessible to get into property, there are two ways you can go about that, which are going via joint tenants or tenants in common. Is that right, Glenn? Yeah. So this is is a really good thing to know and it's more around the estate planning side of it. So, uh, if you were to die, perhaps we want to know what happens. So, Azari and I, we're best friends, <laughs> we do podcasts together and we're like, hey, Azaria, let's buy a property together. Yeah. So, if we buy a house that's $500,000 and whether we're living in it or it's an investment property and we went 50-50, would effectively own $250,000 each of the property and that we would want to put it, well, my advice to Azaria and she'd probably be the same, is in tenants in common. So effectively what happens is if I died, um, Azaria doesn't instantly own my half. My half is owned by my estate and my estate will need to be wound up. So that means Azaria will either need to buy me out or the property would have to be sold. Conversely, the other side of this is if Azaria and I in a universe far, far away on a different um, spectrum, we're both married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Azaria, what are you doing for the the rest of your life? (laughs) So... Generally speaking, more than not, if we were married and we purchased a property, it would be joint tenants. Mm -hmm. So that would mean if either of us were to pass away, the surviving spouse 
would instantly own that half of the property. Yeah. It's generally common if two people uh, were buying a property together that had already been married and there was previous kids from a relationship, they would, again, probably do it in tenants in common. So, again, it's just a, if you want to write that down, speak to your conveyancer, the mortgage broker, just make sure that we've got the ownership structure. It could be a strategy if you are dating someone and you've been together for a couple of years and you think you want to buy a house together, question mark could be an option, mm-hmm. just tenants in common. You want to protect yourself and your loved ones. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of protecting yourself, protection in general, um, could you talk us through some of the different insurances that would be really good to consider when you're looking at taking out a mortgage? When you get a mortgage, the bank want to know two things, effectively security and income. So how are you going to pay for the loan? Mm-hmm. If your income stopped, what would happen? The bank would say, you need to pay us. Oh, you can't pay us. We're coming to take the house. <laughs> coming to get you. <laughs> hard your wife, hard your kids. <laughs> There's a banker out here <laughs> and he's getting all your houses. No, something um, along those lines. <laughs> so, something like that. So I would say um, I would really encourage you to consider And you might even do this, you know, six months before your mortgage and all that stuff. And even if you're renting and not planning on ever Mm -hmm. buying a house to live in for a while, to really consider income insurance. And the reason why, if you could not work for a period of time or ever again, we want to make sure, and that's due to uh, accident or illness, we want to make sure that the money doesn't stop. So income insurance, uh, jump in the My Millennial Money Facebook group or send someone a message on Instagram if you want more info about that. Uh, That's certainly something that I would encourage you to consider. Also, if your parents are giving you a hard time about buying your first home, say, it's all right, I've got income insurance. So if something was to happen to me, I'm not going to be mooching off you. I've got insurance if I'm sick or if I get injured. Absolutely. Actually, Zari, get this. Um, it's going up on the My Millennial Money podcast probably in a few weeks. Oh, no, the My Millennial Money Express podcast mm-hmm. interviewed a, a listener. She just built her emergency fund up, was in a car crash, got T-boned, get this, in a Corolla like yours. No way. <laughs> yeah. She had four people in the car, got trapped in it, it T-boned her side, broke her pelvis, was off work for six months, only just got back to work. Yeah, and she's just like praising her emergency fund and just moved out of home like two weeks before she had the crash. Did she have income protection insurance? So, no, because she was still at uni and working part-time, so she didn't qualify, but she had the emergency fund. Amazing. So, that's a whole other thing. So, you need to make sure that the money doesn't stop if something happened beyond your circumstances. Mm -hmm. The other things you need to consider, uh, the bank will want, before they settle on the mortgage, uh, they'll want to see a certificate of currency to make sure you've got content, uh, not contents, home insurance. So, if the place burned down, if if a plane crashed into it, if it was flooded and they want to make sure that you've got an insurance policy because- that needs to be worth something if you couldn't pay. So they'll make you get home insurance before you settle. I'd also consider while you're doing that, get contents insurance. I've actually just started Azaria. I don't know if you do this, it might be weird. I've just started a spreadsheet 
and I've got a personal assets register. You're kidding. I was just doing that yesterday. <laughs> really? Yeah, literally you yesterday. You should actually, mate, your template will be better than mine. You should share it with people in the show notes or oh, something. that's a good as idea. an Excel document. Well, what yeah. I want to do as well, because I started doing that, I just started by putting notes in my phone, but I'm also going to go through and take photos of everything because I remember when I was a kid, our house got robbed and- no way. Yeah, the contents insurance people, they wanted us to provide photographic evidence that we owned what we said we owned. Um, so mm. having the receipts and a photo is really good for proving and actually getting the money back for all of your items if you were to get robbed. So yeah, that's a good one. I, I, got, I got broken into a couple of years ago when I was in China. In China? Yeah, someone broke into my house while I wasn't here. Oh, I see. How much did, did they steal yeah. much? Two laptops. Mm. Um, but- Here's a trick, people. When you go overseas, lock your house. <laughs> well, that'll do it. That'll definitely do it. <laughs> Only Glenn. At least they didn't smash anything, yeah. Um, so the other thing, if, if you are buying your first property, you're going to need to consider uh, landlord insurance. So I've got landlord insurance on my investment property that, uh, and it's really cheap. It's like a week's worth of rent a year. It just covers if the tenant's, you know, change the oil of their Harley Davidson in the middle of your lounge room <laughs> or um, if they trash the place or if they can't pay rent, it will cover the rent for a little, a few weeks. Uh, that's an option, um, not necessary. The bank will want to make sure that the building's insured, uh, but certainly the landlord insurance. If you're buying in the complex um, and there's strata, and Azari can do an episode on what strata is, I don't know if you want to add that on your list because that's probably a good little 10 minute. If you're in a, a main unit building or something like that, uh, that will be insured part of your fees that you pay the body corporate. So, I mean, these 10 points, I don't know if do you want to recap the last five. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of strategy and execution. Yep. So, we've just gone through considering whether or not you want to live with someone, getting a roommate or living by yourself, actually chatting to a mortgage broker and getting an idea of how much you can borrow. Considering your strategy around having your property as an investment or as a personal place of residence, considering joint tenants or tenants in common if you're planning on buying a property with somebody else and sorting out your insurances, both personal with income protection insurance, as well as home and contents and landlord insurance. Is that a pretty much everything we talked about, Glenn? It is. And it's really not a a complete list. I mean, you know, we did touch on grants, but maybe as part... And, and realistically, some of these aren't in any particular order, but you could be starting to, you know, while you are paying down your debt, you might go, look, I need some inspiration. I'm going to have a clarity call with John or I'm paying down my debt. I've got a good income. Uh, I probably should consider some income insurance anyway, because if something happened to me, I need money to pay rent. Yeah. So, it's not a concise list, but it's just some things as a bit of a thinking point, the, the stuff that you need to consider before you buy your first property. Absolutely. So these will be really great points. If people are hungry for more and they want to uh, hear more podcasts or more information about property, you do have the My Millennial Money Property podcast, right? Yeah. So you can search My Millennial Property wherever you're listening to this. And as well, feel free to reach out. Like if you want Azari to do some um, some episodes specific to you know, like under 25s about anything to do with property, by all means, send her a message, send Gen Z Money a message and we'll do some content and answer all your questions. We might even do an episode, Azaria, property Q&A, and we can get you on with John and 
John can answer some questions with you. Yeah, I would love that. That would be excellent. Perfect. So I think that's pretty much everything for today's episode. So thank you so much again, Glenn, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And as Glenn said, if you have any suggestions for episodes or any further questions, feel free to reach out to us. And the links to everything that we discussed today will be in the show notes. But in the meantime, I will see you guys next week. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.